It's time for the Sick, Tired, and Transcendent Podcast. But I'm tired of being tired of being tired. With Jasmine and Crystal. All right. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Sick, Tired, Transcendent. I am joined here today with my co-host, Crystal, and we have a special guest as well. Yes. Our special guest is my, currently my manager, um, but he's cool as shit. And yeah, so Kevin, just introduce yourself because I don't know. You're just too amazing. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Crystal. Yes, I have the esteemed pleasure of working with Crystal on the daily. But my name's Kevin. I'm originally from the Deep South, I'll claim, and hey. <laughs> and um, I get the honor of working with Crystal on the daily. And I have recently moved up to Philadelphia in the past few years, so I'm in the Northeast now, learning how to live with the cold, not learning how to drive in the snow, still holding on to my Southern roots. Yeah, I always put. <laughs> I always put that I'm a displaced Southerner. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jazz, I completely follow you around on the, I'm really glad that there are some upsides to what we're currently having to do when we work from home because I will not be driving in the snow. If I do, the entire Northeastern area will shut down having to drive behind me because I will be driving very slowly. <laughs> I, just, I think I'm decent. My learning curve is a little more steep because I'm in Bur- Buffalo, so if you want to go anywhere, so. <laughs> Like if you want to live your life, you gotta drive in the snow. So I think and I think I'm not too bad, but yeah, I'm definitely a displaced southerner as well. The topic we're gonna dive into today, we're gonna to be talking about allyship. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into it, but like injustice is gonna happen in this country just because like how it's societally set up. So here we are yet again. <laughs> um I think people are looking for ways for other people to show up for them. And allyship, the conversation has come up so many times. I know for me, I've been running into people and they're like, I want to say something, but I don't know what to say. It's just some insight into what you can do as an ally. I mean, Kevin can't help us because I'm not allied to racially. I'm not an ally to that community. But to other communities, yeah, we can show up as allies. But I think it's also important to think about what allyship is not, because I think a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm an ally. I have a black friend or I'm an ally. I have a gay friend. And that doesn't mean you're an ally. Yeah. So that's what the conversation's about today. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is they should be aiming to be co-conspirators, but everybody got black friends. Everybody have listened to a Kendrick Lamar album. Like, <laughs> that's not going to help me right now. But I think that's the biggest thing. So when you think about allyship, how would you define it? I think for me, one of the things that stood out with what you were just saying and then just the journey towards active allyship today and every day is you as or me, I as a white person or any white listeners, we don't get to call ourselves allies. That's not something that we can claim. Right. Like that is a it's an active step we're taking. These are actions that are daily. You don't just arrive at allyship. Like you said just now, Jasmine, you're not just listening to an album and then claiming allyship lately. I'm noticing even on my feeds, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, different places, we were hyping things and it was read this book and donate here and go here. And then it just dies down like it always does. And even looking at data around the support of groups um, and, and movements like Black Lives Matter, we're at their height in May. And then slowly but surely they start to tick down less and less white people joining the movement or calling themselves allies to that specific statement that Black Lives Matter and the movement behind it. And so for me, allyship is more about a set of actions and listening. 
I think the biggest lesson I learned is <laughs> you can know so much as a white person. You can read every book. You can academically get your PhD in critical race theory, and you can read every single paper that was ever written about how to be a quote unquote ally. And yet you would still be missing out on lived experiences, truths that we will never hold. And so it isn't about just aligning yourself with, like you were saying, Jasmine, your one black friend or Crystal, as you pointed out, having that one gay friend who can tell you their experience because people aren't a monolith. And so you might have one black friend who tells you their experience and that's great. You should diversify your friendships, but you have to listen to many different people from many different backgrounds to diversify the worldview that you take things in through. And that really puts a different lens even on your worldview. So for me, that was teaching and joining a movement to, I taught in a you know deep South state and all of my students were black. I never taught a white student. And I was 25 minutes away from Selma. Civil rights wasn't just in our history book. It was my students' grandparents telling me stories. And so for me, allyship, it's not an option. It is an active process. I mean, and, and it's not something that you can, you're not committing to an arrival. Like I said earlier, you're committing to learning and listening. Well, damn, you just summed it all up. I guess we can close out now, huh? Right. Have a good day. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, because I get to be around both of you all the time, you know, I've learned a whole lot. So I'm just regurgitating back what I've learned. <laughs> At, at some point, we'll have to have a side conversation, too, because my grandparents are actually from Selma. So we'll have to talk about that. I wonder, so my question is for people that want to show up daily. What are some small things they could do or like suggestions? Because I get it all the time as a DEI practitioner. People are like, what can we do? We've read this. What can we do? And I'm like, this is the thing you don't understand about just being a practitioner, I would assume there are parallels. If I'm not reading and studying and like brushing up every day, I'm never going to arrive. Like I can't roll up and teach you something and just be like, <laughs> I'm a expert. Or like you may reach a space where you have amplified your voice, but you still need to learn. And, I, and I'm wondering, what are some of the daily practices people could use to like show up every day? I mean, it sounds just like that quote that you put in our notes from Roxanne Gay, where she says that Black people do not need allies. We need people to stand up and take on the problems born of oppression as their own, without remove or distance. We need people to do this, even if they cannot fully understand what it's like to be oppressed for their race or ethnicity, gender, sexuality, ability, class, religion, or other marker of identity. We need people to use common sense to figure out how to participate in social justice. I mean, that question always like, what should we do? It's kind of like, what shouldn't you do? I don't want to say that is necessarily common sense, but it kind of is. Well, you know, common sense ain't common. Well, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> I definitely think there are some things that white people can do to actively practice anti-racist strategies, work to be not just allies, but as Jasmine put it earlier, co-conspirators in the fight against anti-Blackness racism, system and structural racism. And it is, like you were saying, Crystal, it's it's about more than just assuming that we have to read a book or learn one thing to do every day. But I think there are tangible things that white people can do to interrupt the pattern. One is we have to, as Jasmine put it earlier, sharpen that sword or that tool for ourselves. So we have to actively do research, work, talking and conversation in community with other white people actively. We can't just have our one white friend that we talk to once a year about the one racist thing 
we did or said, and then leave it from there. White people, we are going to make mistakes. We're going to trip over our words. We're going to use the wrong word. We're going to say the wrong thing to the wrong person. And it doesn't make you a bad person, right? Everybody loves to be, am I a good person or a bad person? If I did that, I'm a bad person. We're really not qualifying if we're good or bad here. What you did could be better, it could be stronger, and you need to be a more active ally and a stronger co-conspirator. But you can't just wait to talk about that with another white person to assume they're going to come down on you. Get a group of friends that identify racially with you that aren't going to come down on you for when you make a misstep, but are instead going to teach you about how to not make that same misstep again. As soon as white people understand that we are going to get things wrong, I get things wrong every single day. Crystal could go in on this call right now about things she wished I had done differently throughout our journey together. And our work as white people is to listen. One of the small things we can do is surround ourselves with other white people who are committed to the work. The other thing is we have to, have to, it's not an option. We have to call people in, in our own life. The small racist remark, that's not small at all, but we see it as small because it does not immediately impact us or our work. The comment from your uncle at Thanksgiving this year, when they talk about the election or one of the candidates or something that was done last year, this year, four decades ago, when they're qualifying those things through a racist lens, you can ask a question. If you do not want to start in that moment, you're like, well, you know, it's my family and I just, I want to make sure that I, no, shut that down right then. Do not allow for people to make racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic marks around you. That is how you can be an ally in that moment. But to commit to the cause, you have to surround yourself with people who won't allow that to exist in your realm anyway. Outside of that, Ask questions to interrupt other people's patterns of thinking. You're not really going to get too far if you're not asking yourself. For, let me speak from my own lens. I'm not going to get very far if I don't ask myself questions daily. Why did I say that? Why did I make that joke? Why haven't I read that book? Why am I seeing this in the news and I didn't know about it? So if you are privileged enough to take a neutral stance when a black body is taken from us too soon, if you are privileged enough to not have to consider structural racism in your daily life, if you are privileged enough to take a moderate or neutral stance and assume that politics doesn't affect your daily life, those are privileges. You have to, we have to, I have to actively interrupt those privileges by questioning myself, questioning the systems around me, and then working to change those. So I think if I'm summarizing that very long-winded answer, Jasmine, as you said, is like one, surround yourself with people who are also committed to the cause, and two, ask questions. You don't necessarily have to say, that was racist in the moment, but you can ask questions to really get underneath where does that line of thinking come from? Because if it exists in your family and it permeates your daily thinking, all of a sudden now you're around someone who fits a stereotype once in your life. And now you take on that stereotype and assume that everybody else who looks that way, speaks that way, sounds that way, wears their hair that way, has to behave that way or take that same set of actions. And that's not the case. Stereotypes exist for a reason because somebody once saw someone do a thing and then they told everybody around them, people who look like X or sound like X or dress like X do that thing. But we can interrupt those in our own life. And that's white people's work. We have to do that. Wow. I guess my question for you, Kevin, being that you are white, because we didn't say that earlier, <laughs> is like, when did you start self-reflection? And I ask that because being black, people think that we don't have work to do and stuff too. But like, even myself, like I have to reflect on my privileges. I have a lot of privilege, even though it might not be like structurally 
or systemically, well, in a sense it is with like my education and like where I live and all of that. When did you start your own self-reflection and is there ever a time, do you feel like, not not that it's too late, we already know, like anybody can do it, but just when do you suggest people start that journey? Yeah, I think I could definitely point to when I was 21, beginning a teaching career is when the work like really began because you can't be in front of a room full of Black students and not <laughs> hear things back from 17-year-olds, 15-year-olds, right? But also, I was, for some students in my class, 21, 22 years old, I was their first ever white teacher. So some of the things that they said back to me, either about my race or how I dress or where I was from or how I talk, those opened up my eyes. Because even though I grew up Southern and grew up around a lot of Black people and was the only white person on the basketball team, etc., that doesn't mean that I have this thinking down or I have a set of ways to assimilate to a different group or a different region of the world or a different type of experience. Like, I couldn't assume that I I knew what was going to happen just because, like you said earlier, Jasmine, like I have a black friend, so I can definitely teach black students like those two things are not you can't relate those two things. So that's definitely when the work was like I actively began Um, one, because, you know, when you're getting certified as a teacher, you're reading, you're writing about and then you're in the classroom with students who are pushing your thinking on that. And my peers also were. But also there are a couple like vivid memories that stick out to me growing up, because like I said, I grew up in a really small town and I remember how. We weren't officially segregated, but most activities were, you know what I mean? In terms of like where students sat whenever they ate or when you rode the bus or sports activities, like I said. And so for my senior year, I was the only white guy on the basketball team. And so all my friends were black because when you're on a sports team, you hang out with your teammates, right? And so if it was a Friday or a Saturday night, my town had one red light, smallest town (laughs) in the state, smallest county in the state. So if you want to do something, you're going to call your teammates and do something because you're bored. There's nothing else to do. And so I remember being a part of thinking that since I had a lot of Black friends that absolved me from other things that were happening in the world or from really holding myself accountable. So when I started my journey as a teacher and they asked questions like, when did you start your racial journey? Like, how were you socialized? When did you learn about privilege? I did not think that I had white privilege whenever I went to college because I lived with a single mom. We struggled financially for about seven years. Back then, I used to say we were poor, but that's not a statement that I use anymore because when you start to learn about poverty and systemic racism and anti-Blackness and systems that were set up to keep people without the financial means to escape class warfare, mm-hmm. I stopped calling myself poor for that reason. I think there were definitely moments growing up where I was doing a little bit of work, but I can't even say that I actively acknowledged privilege, knew what it was, or started working to interrupt my privileges until I started teaching. And then... <laughs> I sort of forget what your second question was. Oh, when should people, when should people start? The earlier you can, the better. There isn't an age, obviously, that's like, this is when you have to start doing anti-racism work. If you are 75 years old listening to this, you need to start yesterday. If you are eight listening to this, you need to start yesterday. I think it doesn't matter where you are on your journey. The journey is never ending because like I said earlier, you're not gonna arrive one day just because you're 30 and you read five books and you have 10 black friends. It's a set of actions. And so start them tomorrow. Even if it's one thing, make a daily commitment to read a thing, do a thing, or listen to somebody else tell you a thing. One of the things that I wrote down (laughs) as Kevin was talking was about the making mistakes, because I think this comes up so much. 
just for my practice, just generally, I'm not like y'all already know that I'm just lying. <laughs> I think just like as a practitioner, I let people know I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fuck up. Don't be surprised. If you work on a team that I'm managing, do not put all your stock in me, baby, because I don't have all <laughs> And so I think like just <laughs> positioning yourself in a way like I try to humanize myself. So if I do mess up, then people aren't like, oh, crap, she's messed up. Like, what can we do? No, y'all knew from the gate that there was some leverage that I'm a human. I'm still learning. And I think we have a lot of pressure to be like, oh, we know everything all of the time. And trust me, I don't know it. And I thought about that as you talked about how people show up as allies or I talked to a lady, she said she didn't call herself an ally, but I would consider her a co-conspirator from the work that she's done for about 40 years now. She's an older white woman. She's really lived and breathed this work. She's been to other countries and she's worked for really grassroots organizations. And she was like, you know, I started doing cultural sensitivity work whenever, you know, that was the old before we became a <laughs> guy. And she was like, and now I still feel stuck sometimes. And it's because people are looking at me to be an expert. And I would say for people that have been doing this work a long time, don't feel like you ever get yourself to a place where you can be like, nah, I'm above, you know, just those daily practices that you just talked about. None of us are above it. Even myself, as I align to um, be an ally to other communities, LGBT community, indigenous communities, other Latinx communities. As I align to be an ally to those communities, I can't ever feel like I've gotten to a place where I can't do those same practices. I need to self-reflect. And like you said, challenging people that's around you. Before we got on this call, see, I'm going to tell y'all the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Before the back, we the got, behind the scenes. The button, yeah, BTS. <laughs> Before we got on this call, I was like, I, you know, a filter that I run people through if I'm thinking about dating them or if it's going to be anything. It's like, what is their, like, are they homophobic? Go ahead, put a filler out there. Because if the filler come back negative, I'm going to be like, nah, we can't turn this into nothing. I yeah, think, definitely. I think for me, again, the part where you're like making mistakes, what stands out, even for myself, I just joined this Facebook group called Sounds like you need to be an educated on transgender individuals, but okay. And it's a really sarcastic title, but basically to be a support and learn and listen. They even have it where the moderators say cisgendered people do not respond to this post for six hours and then they'll let you know you're taking up time. So I'm, I'm always scared to say anything. So I just kind of do the little care or the heart emojis. I don't know so much and it is scary, but I'm still trying to step out and learn something. Somebody actually asked me about um, someone I know personally and they were like, oh, um, this person has a sister, right? And I'm like, no, a brother. And they were kind of confused. And I was like, trans brother, but why? Like, and I felt like maybe I shouldn't even said that because I don't know. So I'm still struggling, but I'm also still trying to learn and be as supportive as I can be. But then that also looks like anytime someone who doesn't identify me like I do is murdered or something, I'm sharing that information and uplifting stories and letting people know these people are people. Why others belittling them or making them feel less than you should read this story or you should open your eyes to this. And it is difficult, but it's not about me or it's not about you. It's about the people that we are supposed to be allies to. 
Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with both of you. I mean, I think once I just understood that I was going to get so much wrong and acknowledged that I was going to get so much wrong, it really just takes a lot of the weight off. But let me say this, the work that we do with students, with other teachers, if you are actively seeking to be an anti-racist human or a co-conspirator to other communities, the work is high stakes. For example, in, in race work, the work is high stakes, but for white people, we can absolve ourselves from those stakes a lot of the time. So we have to work really hard and remember that those stakes are high. People's lives are literally on the line and we can remove ourselves a lot of times from those stakes, but getting something wrong or saying something wrong isn't a reason to remove yourself from trying. We could go down the path of like, there are things that are just like the ultimate wrong, like literally killing another human in race work or you know, something as far left as that. But in terms of like learning, doing, interrupting, you're gonna get it wrong. You're gonna say something wrong. So once you understand, once I understood as a white person, oh, I'm gonna make a lot of mistakes. I have friends that will hold me accountable in the moment, but also after like, hey, on that post, here's what you said, here's what you did. So if you're willing to post something, somebody will call you out, right? Because a lot of people have different beliefs, even in anti-racist work. Somebody will say like that, I would not have approached this that way. I really don't think you should have posted this. Now you can commit to take that post down and repost and say, hey, one of my friends just educated me on this word that I used or this, it was a slur and I didn't know that it was a slur, right? 10 years ago, people were using all kinds of words that now we will call out in a second. And in 10 more years, we're probably using a word on this podcast that somebody else might want to call out. And that's that's evolution. That's progress. That's good. We should want change and progress. But like I said, you know, the work is high stakes, but it doesn't mean that as white people, we can just escape from the work. You have to commit to the work. You have to take action to be better in the work. And sometimes it's okay as white people to just shut up. And I think <laughs> Once I learned that, especially when you're in a room with people that do have a different racial identity than you, you don't have to have all of the answers. You just don't. And you don't have to be in the woke Olympics to say something first. <laughs> white dominant culture teaches the world that white people speak first and speak the most. So work against that. Work to push yourself. I've had to push myself so much this last year because I'm a talker. I like to talk. So that is the one element of white dominant culture where I'm like, oh. I want to answer this question so badly, but just <laughs> shut up. Just sit back. Let somebody else speak first. It will not ruin your life. In fact, it will change your life probably for the better because you'll learn something that will inform your comment so that mediocre white men can get out of the way for better statements to be made. I was trying to look it up and see what's that. Brene Bre- Bre- Brown that talked about giving up looking good. Is that her? I Is think so. Her? Yeah, on the uh, on her, I think it was on her Netflix special, maybe. Or in yeah, her book. it might be. But yeah, give up looking good because you're not going to look good in this work at all. <laughs> that That's dead. It's how you show up and the mistakes, I feel like, defines a lot of who you really are. If you are open to learning and growing in, through the mistakes, then I feel like that's more of who you are. Some of the suggestions that, you know, we'll have in the show notes. Crystal, you can also link that Facebook group for the people. Oh, sure. Don't be um, in there wreaking havoc because I said something like, Oh, and don't say we told you to come in there. You come in there acting crazy, Get come in and get somewhere and sit down. Right. Like your mom right. told you. <laughs> don't, don't come in acting crazy. <laughs> but yeah, you can link that group. Some of the do's and don'ts from the guide to allyship that I grab is like, do's, do be open to listening. Do be aware of your implicit biases. Do your research and learn more about the history of struggle in which you are participating do the inner work to figure out a way to acknowledge 
how you participate in oppressive systems, do the outer work and figure out how to change the oppressive system. Do use your privilege to amplify digitally and in person. Star exclamation point right there, in person. <laughs> Historically suppressed voices. Do learn how to listen and accept criticism with grace, even if it's uncomfortable. Yes, for sure. Do the work every day to learn how to be a better ally. And then some of the don'ts that they have on that guide, it'll be in the show notes. Do not expect to be taught or shown. Take it upon yourself to use the tools around you to learn and answer your questions. Do not participate for the gold medal in the oppression Olympics. <laughs> you do not need to compare to your struggle is just as bad as a marginalized person. Do not behave as though you know best. Please don't, don't embarrass yourself. Do not take credit for labor of those who are marginalized and did the work before you stepped into the picture. Oh. Yeah, I oh, we need to talk about that because I feel like that happens a lot in the work all that we the do. time. And do not assume that every member of an underinvested community feels oppressed. Definitely. I think one thing that stood out was on implicit bias. So for me, this was the thing that I had the most pushback about when I was learning about race and anti-racism and, and being white, right? Like what? I'm not biased. I don't have any biases. I'm not active, but they're called implicit biases for a reason. We hold those because of how we were socialized or how we were, up, you know, how we were brought up. In the 70s, people were still using different terms than what we use now, right? And it's okay to call your mom in and say like, hey, we don't really say that anymore. And here's why, because we've evolved and we've progressed. And so I think about the ways in which my grandfather refers to groups of people just differently, right? Like some of the words have evolved. We no longer say a word like oriental, right? Like that is, we don't use that word anymore. And there are reasons for that. We have learned why that is not okay. We have learned that there are so many other inclusive ways to discuss Asian Americans, or people of Asian descent. And the same way when we think about, you know, the recent conversation around the Washington football team, it has been a long time coming for us to elevate native issues in this country. And we're not there yet, but we're finally starting to have some of that conversation. But when I think about implicit biases, I just think white people, we will go a lot longer and further in life if we just acknowledge that we do hold them. I, I believe it was Dr. Beverly Tatum, her definition of racism centers power. And so under that definition, every white person is racist and our word is not a bad word. You can just acknowledge like, yes, we do hold implicit biases, which means we will act in ways that are racist because we uphold systems of power that benefit us because of our race explicitly that do not benefit other groups. It does not mean, as I said earlier, that you are just an explicitly bad person. You are holding a belief that is not advancing other people around you. You are participating in a system. I am participating in systems that benefit me that elevate my work, that give me a promotion, a raise, a resume booster that other people do not get. Does that mean that you can fall back and say, but I worked really hard. We could have a whole other podcast just about the, the nature of work and working hard and the bootstrap theory and all of that. But white people are given the benefit of the doubt. How, I could not count on my hand how many times I'm just given the benefit of the doubt on my work or on my statement or something I've done where that likely would not be the case for either person on this podcast other than me. And so that's not okay. That's not fair. The system was designed that way. It's working. That is where implicit bias comes in because we continue to advance those ideas and those notions within systems that they were built with implicit bias and explicit bias in some cases and some systems to advance me or people that look like me and elevate people that look like me. But 
I and others like me can hold ourselves accountable, get out of the way. That doesn't mean that you have to never accept a promotion or not say that you do good work. You can do good work. You can brag about your work and you can sit down and shut up and let a black woman talk too. Yeah, my family from the South, you know, they be saying some wild stuff. Half of the shadow work is challenging them. Like, y'all got to stop. <laughs> like, y'all, we don't use these words no more. Um, but yeah, like, fully prepared for Thanksgiving. Pew, 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 to make sure <laughs> nobody is saying anything crazy. This example is kind of like, I guess people wouldn't think it's that serious or whatever. As y'all know, I was trying to buy plants instead of record a little bit earlier. <laughs> Trifle. <laughs> and, I, and I'm pretty sure I just saw her click and she bought the plant while- They said was everything was sold out. So. I checked. <laughs> Blame us. It but just no, wasn't, so- wasn't your time to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up, there's this beautiful plant. It's called, the, I forget the real name, but it's like a Zabrina or whatever. It has these like purple and green leaves and it trails and- my dad has always had them. He's always had clippings. He's always propagated them and made them into bigger plants because they grow faster. They were always called wandering Jew. It wasn't until recently that it was like this big debate, like that's so offensive. Don't say that. I didn't have anything to say. I'm like, well, it's not offensive to me, but it's also not my place to say whether or not it's offensive. So I just sat back and just, you know, how you're like up at 2 a.m. just scrolling through, reading every single comment of argument online. So I was doing that. But some people in Philly, you know, now they're calling them wandering Johns because, you know, a John is a person, place or thing. It's everything in Philly. So that's what I call it now. So like I'll be at the store like, y'all got any wandering Johns? Or let me go get a clipping of that wandering John. So I don't know what the rest of y'all are going to call them. But it's easier to just acknowledge that some people may be hurt or may have feelings about things that you don't share those same feelings with. But if it's not your group or it's not your identity that's being challenged, then just sit back and listen. Absolutely. I think about that all the time with pronouns. Mm -hmm. It's just really not that difficult to use the pronouns that someone tells you to use for them. Even if you have your own internal, political, emotional, whatever type of debate you're having with yourself, it's just not about you. So for me, like, it's just not about me in that moment. If I use an incorrect pronoun and somebody corrects me and says, oh, it's it's actually she and her, just use she and her. Um, It's just not that hard. They just told you, they just corrected you. And I think a lot of times we get caught up on, we want to have the language debate. When you don't know somebody and you pass them on the sidewalk, you say, did y'all see them? You don't ever gender that person because they, you didn't see them. So you use the word them. So why can't we just keep that same energy whenever somebody tells us that they also use pronouns, they and them. They just told us what their pronouns were. So unless you're trying to have an argument to explicitly say you will not be using those pronouns, it is just so disrespectful. Somebody told you their pronouns, use the pronouns. Yeah. It's the same thing in race work, I feel, when somebody says like, oh, actually, you can't say that. Or here's why we don't do that anymore. Or could you step out of the way, Kevin? Because, you know, it's it's not your turn or your, your movement. I think about that when we talk about like protests or marches. White people... We're there to lift up and elevate other voices if it's a if it's a march for race and to use your bodies as physical protection in certain moments to ensure that the message can still be used and get out. It's not about us. I've seen way too many times when white people co-opt movements and it's not our movement. I think that can get the headlines, right? A white person says or does a thing. And now all of a sudden, that's what we're talking about. That's what the media is focused on instead of whatever the original intent or messaging was. So I think about that a lot. Didn't it happen? Wasn't it the Me Too movement? 
I didn't even know that a black woman had started that. I just saw, who's that girl from Charmed? She was the one talking about Alyssa. Milana. Milana, there you go. Yeah. And I just thought they had made that up. And then find out years before it was a black woman. And then they're still Mm -hmm. trying to like co-opt it and just like, well, we can use it too. And this stands for this. But how do you know what it stands for if you didn't create it? Unless you are Tarana Burke, I believe that's how you say her first name. You didn't make that. (laughs) So you could ask a lot of questions and and get out of the way before you begin using that. Yeah. First of all, pronouns aren't hard to use. Like just do what people tell you to do. Y'all can use nicknames and everything else. Just do what the folks say. How about just their name? Or their names. But you know, they try to act like they can't pronounce people's names either. So that's I was just going to say that. If, <laughs> if you can that's watch... Other bag. <laughs> if you can watch tennis and stay Stefano Tsitsipas, and you can you can say oh, every goodness. Russian last name in the book, if you can watch... I was about to call it World World of Wonder. That's RuPaul's production company. Or I was whatever. about to say... I'm sorry. What, what am I trying to say? Game of Thrones. Oh. If you... If you, <laughs> if, oh, yeah, you yeah. if you If you can watch Game of of Thrones and say, I don't watch it, so I don't know, but Cersei Lannister, I believe, is on there, or all these other names. You can say every name on your roster if you're a teacher. You can say whatever name on whatever resume comes on your desk. And that's when we could talk about implicit bias. Stop throwing those resumes in the trash can just because you didn't like the name or couldn't say the name. Mm-hmm. Period. Well, I will say for me, I struggle sometimes with names and work just generally. I'm like, look, I'm talking over my accent. So tell me how to pronounce it your way. Like, it's ridiculous to the point where I would have to practice it with them. But I really want to get it right. And I'm like, look, we're talking over all of this. And I'm trying to learn how to say a name. It might take me a minute, but I want to do it right and correctly. But yeah, I agree. Just saying that, you could literally say, I really want to get your name right. I apologize. If I get it wrong, it might take me a couple of times, but I'm learning. That's better than just fucking it up all the time. I'll tell you about a learning experience I had. There was somebody's name and I couldn't get it right. And it was like a full, it probably was like 50 people in the room. And so I was trying to just skip over it. I attempted to say I couldn't get it right. And then other people pushed me to try to get me to say it right. And of course, it's going to, like I said, I struggle with names and just pronunciation, period. I don't know if y'all know Tim Demery. Mm-hmm. He, he really pushed me to try to get there, get the person's name right. And I just practiced it until I got it. But again, it was like 50 people. So I was like, oh, shit, I'm messing up these folks' name and I can't get it right. And in that moment, I just had to be sit in that place of embarrassment and understand the limitations of that's just like a stumbling block that I have and just being OK with that. I, I talk about it all the time. Kevin, though, on Twitter, I talk about it all the time because people associate my accent or the way that I speak with my intelligence and that and that's not fair but the thing about giving up looking good is sometimes that's gonna push against what you're trying to do you're gonna fuck up words I will in my case yeah but even the fact that you took the time so I think this is a great analogy for for white people right you took a few extra minutes to ask a friend on how to say the name and you practice it to get it right we as white people in race work we can also do the same thing when we get called out in the moment or one of our friends tells us about a bias that they're seeing us act on, we can do the same thing. We can we can talk with that friend about how to work against that bias. 
we can ensure that as allies or trying to work towards being co-conspirators, instead of asking your Black friend, what can I do for you in this moment? Or taking up emotional space from them, ask a white friend and practice with your white friend and take up the emotional space of your white friend. Because I think it's the hardest thing to learn, but you can still be a good person and be there for your friends, your friends of color, specifically your Black friends, when things are going on around you without asking them, are you okay? How are you? What can I do for you? Ask your white friends, hey, how are you supporting the Black people in your life? How are you supporting the Black friends in your life? How are you supporting your Black peers? If you manage Black people, talk to other white managers instead of pushing that burden down or up on your manager that's a person of color, specifically a Black person or on any direct reports that you have. Ask, ask your peers first before you really take up space in those moments. So I think that's a good example, Jasmine, of how everybody's doing this work. Everybody needs to be practicing and getting things right or better and you're still going to make mistakes at the end of the day also people have messaged me about something i think it was right after george floyd's murder y'all know how they do it right they messaged me for something and i was like look my whole team is black <laughs> we we haven't gotten to it the whole team is black and people were pissed with me i was like and don't expect to get it today and so also be as you are getting ready to set up and do that work, be willing to experience what people's answer is going to be. Just like the debates. I would say the debates. And Kevin, you the debate person. But I would say for the debates, I'm so tired of them getting up there talking about African-Americans. Y'all can't update this language to Black? Please. With language updates, it's hard, too. When people are, oh, use Latinx, or, oh, use Black, or, oh, now we're using this term, or, like, now we're using Indigenous, people are having a hard time orienting to updating language. That's just a whole other I mean, even if they're having a hard time, though, again, everything is not going to come easy. Take the L. You know white dominant culture, we like, why? what's the word? What's the update? Where is this written? I didn't see. I didn't get a release. I ain't know black folks were saying black now. I thought we could still say African-American, Afro-American. Oh, we could still say Negro. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Crystal, please delete her off the line. (laughs) This is now a one-on-one interview. That's her second strike. Strike one, she ain't think the wandering Jew was that bad. That was strike one. No, I ain't say I ain't think it was that bad. (laughs) We need to uh, throw an implicit bias association this on her. Flag, flag on the play. She was just trying to find a way to work the word John into this podcast. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I hear you, Jasmine. I think we language updates are hard. Specifically, have you ever learned something one way and then somebody teaches you a different way and now you're like, wait, am I wrong? Is my whole life wrong? You begin to question everything. I think about that a lot with Our older politicians in the 60s and the 70s, black was a bad word for white politicians and for white elected leaders. You know, if you said black, you were racist and you were saying something wrong. And that's not giving them an excuse. I believe we need to hold those people accountable in this moment and say, look, it's not the 70s anymore. What you learned five decades ago is no longer relevant. And and we're taking you to task and holding you accountable. I can't tell you how many times on my timeline I see I'm not African-American, I'm black. As a white person, when people of color became a terminology that was more inclusive or we were taught to use that terminology instead of segmenting people specifically by race. Me as a white person, if I'm scrolling and I see one person say, 
call me black. I'm black. But then the next person says, I like people of color. Some people just prefer to be called different things. And there, and that was my point earlier when we started the podcast is like, people are not monolithic. You, you need to get a better understanding of everyone in your life and lots of different groups around you. And again, you're still going to get it wrong. Now that some language has been updated, you may use the term black and somebody might say, and look at you a little funny and ask you to call them something different. They may want to be called African-American. They may want to be called a person of color. And so same way we ask for pronouns and correct pronunciation of name, let other people tell you how they say their social identities. I think about that a lot of times with the LGBTQ community as well. There's lots of different words and not everybody wants to be called queer. Not everybody wants to be called gay. There might be different categorizations that work for certain people's identities because identities are our own and we get to identify ourselves to other people. So I think, I think that's a really great point. All right. Well, I feel like I could just pack on up. Our work is done. <laughs> but um, generally at the end of our podcast, we talk about what's keeping us transcending, you know, in this crazy, crazy world. Crystal, mm-hmm. on the chopping block, <laughs> what's keeping you transcending these days? So I think I spoke about my depression, my clinical depression before. It is usually exacerbated. <laughs> um, to my club. It gets dark and, you know, cold and things like that really early. Right now I'm feeling good and I'm trying to keep it up for now. But I think what's really keeping me transcending is knowing that it's holiday season. I mean, y'all probably going to get this podcast a little late, but it's Halloween and my kids are dressing up. We're having a virtual costume party for work. And at first I wasn't going to go, but now I have to win this costume contest. So I got to figure something out. And then, you know, I'm not really worried about Thanksgiving. Like I eat all day, every day, that's fine. But Christmas, just being in our own home for the first time, I can decorate outside, I can decorate inside. I'm buying like three Christmas trees this year. I've already decided where they're going. (laughs) So it makes me excited. Three. Look, I need one, I'm moving my desk out of my office and putting it right in the middle of the floor. That's the big one. I'm going to put one in the living room and then I'm going to have a small one in the kids' room. Boom, three. So we know where to mask up and stop by for Christmas then. Bring our hand sanitizer, <laughs> put it on, go in so we can see all three trees. <laughs> right. Look, we got a we got a Halloween tree up right now. Now you're making me want to get three. <laughs> Look, I could put my main one in my living room, then a little one outside, and then one on my vanity table. Yeah, have one on your balcony, see? Mm-hmm. That'll balance out the averages because I will be having exactly zero. I don't ever put trees up. <laughs> you can put lights on your little plant. See? There you go. <laughs> um, for me, so I was sore all week. I'm like you, the season of depression is on my heels. Like it's 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 nippy. I'm like, all right, I need some sun. I need a vacation. And the fact that generally, usually this time of year, I'll be traveling and I'm here, stuck at the North Pole and can't go nowhere. <laughs> Not the North Pole. But yeah, the fact that I'm generally stuck here and can't go anywhere is, whoo, it's testing me. And so I've started working out with a personal trainer and that's been what's been keeping me going is just being accountable, A, to the money I paid, but B, to trying to get my body right. I'm full forced for my birthday. <laughs> I'm like going into 30, I'm like, everything got to be right. 
But yeah, I'm even giving up alcohol on November 1st. So y'all keep me in your prayers. <laughs> keep me lifted, you know. I don't know if you're a praying person or not, but you know, just add me on your altar. <laughs> yeah, send me some positive vibes. Working out with a train. I was sore all weekend. I was like, this is what y'all been doing. I couldn't barely sit down. Why I got to grab the counter then and ease down to the toilet? That ain't normal. <laughs> that ain't normal. But yeah, it, I better be looking snatched for my birthday. I, I better be better be looking right. Kevin, what's keeping you going? I need to follow behind you because as I told you earlier, I think I've caught my COVID-19, aka my 19 <laughs> pounds that I've put on since March. You know, it's so ironic when people ask me what gives me energy or gives me life because I think it's what drains everybody else around me in my life, but it is elections. I love studying elections, elections data, candidates, local people who are going, going to, in my opinion, make a really deep impact in communities. And so as we approach the the day after 2016, I really dove in deep with like, how could this happen at such a level, not even just with one race, right? But at such a level, let me dig a little deeper into all of the races that are coming up. How can we make changes during these next four years that will be okay with me if we have to live under this administration. And so for me, it's about to be, I guess, Super Bowl. It's election Super Bowl coming up, right? The presidential election results are um, gonna be out in about a week because I think it's gonna take you know a couple extra days this year to count. But I really enjoy researching candidates, looking at polls, donating to people that I think will make an impact. So what drains the people in my life it just fills up my cup. So the opposite of what everybody else would say to this question, I think. Right. And I don't know if you're in witness protection or not because you cut your beard off. So I, I'm unsure. <laughs> but is there anywhere where people can find you online if they would like to follow you? Yeah, go to beardlesskevin.com. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just teasing up. I had to, I had to get it off, Jasmine. You know the grays; they're coming in deep now. So once she gets my, nice, so. you know, you know um, the you follow me on my agent <laughs> wisdom, right? I have an Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at the letter K Waters W A T E R S two thousand eight. If you want to follow me there and just see an insane amount of story posts, because you won't see much posted to the grid. So if you're interested, you can you can follow me there. All right, and where you can find us as always. You want to talk about some work, some business, you want to pay some black folks, that's another way you can get out the way. You can find us online at the <laughs> www.pivotalparadigmproject.org. We're on Instagram and Facebook as Pivotal Paradigm Project. We're on Twitter as Pivotal Paradigm. And then for the podcast, we're on Instagram and Facebook as Sick transcendent and we're on twitter at sick tired pod you can always email us any questions comments concerns stories at sick transcendent at gmail.com y'all have a great day thank you bye